I always was looking for ways to honor my father who died, you know, again from cancer when he was 58 and I'm 58 now. So it's kind of surreal for me to think that that was it for him. You know, 58, I still got a lot to do. Who knows what next I'll do. <laughs> it's crazy. But I think it was a calling. I mean, it's the only way I, people ask me all the time, why would you do that? Why would you do it? And I think there's something inside you that just says to you, this is something you should do. You know, the way that I was introduced to Haymakers, the way that I kept coming into my life, and then eventually it was like poking me that I needed to act on it. And so many people don't take the opportunity that is in front of them because they're afraid or they can make excuses. And I wasn't going to allow that to happen to me. From Haymakers for Hope, this is not every fight ends at the bell. Haymakers for Hope exists to knock out cancer the only way we know how. Fighting for a cure through charity boxing. Thanks to generous supporters and more than 1,200 ass-kicking do-gooders, Haymakers has raised over $25 million for cancer research, care, awareness, and survivorship. But the March Towards a Cure continues long after the last bell of each event. I'm Julie Kelly. I'm Todd Buster Paris. We know firsthand because we are not just your hosts, we are also survivors. On this podcast, we will highlight the stories of fighters, survivors, organizations, and supporters. Not every fight ends at the bell. Round one. Hey, everyone. Welcome to the podcast. And hey, Chris, thank you so much for being here. Hey, Todd and Julie. My pleasure. How did you hear about Haymakers for Hope? Well, so here's the story. I was working in the media in Boston, and I happened to be working at the Boston Globe at the time in around 2011 or so. And a gentleman I worked with is a guy named Mike Wallace. By the way, that's a big name drop, but go on. (laughs) (laughs) So Wallace and I worked together at the Globe. And if you haven't met him, obviously you guys have met him. But if anybody hasn't met him, Mike's a force. I mean, he's from Southie. He's really great guy and we were we had a great time working together but ultimately he came in one day and said i'm gonna fight in this charity boxing match and it's kind of funny because this goes down this road multiple times in my life my haymaker's life i should call it which really began at that point in 2011 i had never heard of haymakers for hope i didn't really understand charity boxing very much really had never boxed much and mike said i'm gonna fight in this and i said okay when he explained it to me and I thought he was a little crazy, you know, I'm like, you're going to go and you're going to train and you're going to fight. I said, but I'm with you, man. I want to be there. I want to come to the fight. And, uh, he, he, I watched him go through this metamorphosis. It's the only way I could say it. And looking back now, I totally get it. Right. But back then I was, he was very committed and he worked very hard. And this was early days at, uh, Haymakers. Yeah. Mike Wallace competed in 2012. So for context, Julie, when was the first Haymakers? The first Haymakers event was 2011 at the Castle. Okay, so this is, this is, this year, is two. year two. First year at the House of Blues. Oh, wow. So it was really at the beginning of, of, of what this amazing organization has become. And he was training and finally, you know, he would leave work every day to go train or, you know, he was always very focused on it. So Went to the fight, and I was just blown away. I mean, it was early stages. I mean, obviously, things have evolved and grown, and thank goodness. I mean, that's what this is all about, and eventually ending cancer, which is what this is all about. But 
I was blown away and Mike did an amazing job, but I still thought he was kind of crazy. And at the end of the day, I, I just wished him well. I donated to his cause and, and that was it. And then as time went on, I left Boston Globe and went and worked with the Boston O group. And in 2013, Haymakers for Hope was named one of the 50 on fire for uh, Boston O. And I was running the advertising side of that business and I came to the event and I was the first time I met Julie and Andrew. Okay. I think I went up to Andrew. I'm trying to remember back because it was a while ago, but I know I went up to Andrew and talked to him and congratulated him and talked about Haymakers and Mike Wallace and all of that. And I'll never forget in a true Andrew way, just looked me in the eye and said, you should do it. And I said, I don't know about that. <laughs> you know, it's like, because I already thought Mike was a little crazy, right? but it stuck with me. And uh, as time went on that year, I was introduced to some people and I eventually was introduced to George Foreman III, who was about to open his gym. And I just was talking to him about boxing and I told him the story about Mike and about haymakers. He goes, oh, no, I know all about it. And uh, once I get my gym open, I'm planning on having some fighters compete. And I said, that's great. I, I think I'm gonna, I'd like to join your gym. It just was, I went over and toured it and all that. And he said, look, look, if you decide to do haymakers, I'll train you personally. Oh, wow. And I just felt like, that was a message to me. Like after mm. all of working with Mike and then meeting Andrew and Julie and then meeting George the third and all of that just kind of came together and it's a, it was a sign for me. So I pulled the trigger. So Chris, you said that you were blown away. What about it blew you away? I really think what really blew me away was walking into the house of blues and seeing the amount of people there that were screaming other people's names that okay. were not, rock stars or professional athletes. It was, you know, a guy that frankly ran an advertising department at the Globe or mm. a guy that was an accountant or whatever they were. And to see the commitment from these people to a cause. I had never really committed to a cause like that. I've always been involved in community and in my career and I've always tried to give back, but I've never put myself that far over the line, you know, put myself out there. And I was really impressed and that's really the best way I could say it about as far as blown away. You all are rock stars on fight night though, because you're elevated, you're <laughs> yeah. outside your comfort zone and there's, you know, people cheering you on that wouldn't do what you guys are doing. So that's why people are cheering you on because it's, it's incredible. It's true. Yeah. yeah. Well, I appreciate that. You mentioned that you didn't box much before. So what is that? I tune into that anytime a boxer ever says, well, I didn't box much. It's either you did or you didn't. Like, what does that mean exactly? Okay. Well, my short boxing, pre-Haymakers boxing career was I, there was a fraternity fight night in college and I ended up being like, you know, I lost a bet basically to go and fight for my fraternity and it was SIGET fight night. And I was in Lambda Chi and, you know, there's no way that we're not going to have a boxer compete from Lambda Chi. So I, I ended up being the one. And I had to, I boxed in that. I did okay. I mean, I was young and stupid at the time. Right, right, right. Didn't really train very hard, you know, but it was, it was fun. It was fun, but it was nothing like the experience of haymakers. And that's about all the boxing I ever did. That brings us to your experience as a haymaker. So one of the things I love is a trainer, Teddy Atlas, and he always talks about the things that really define and make a boxer are his or her ability to overcome adversity. So I'm super curious as to what adversity did you have to overcome for your haymakers training? In my career, I've lived in many places. And one of the places I've 
lived before I had settled and made my home Boston or Marshfield now is where I live. I lived in Las Vegas. And when I was in Las Vegas, I was working in the media business and I was on my way to the strip in 2002 for a meeting and I was hit head on by a drunk driver. Oof. The vehicle I was driving was pretty much destroyed in the accident. And the people that hit me both passed away and perished in the accident. And I had uh, multiple compound fractures and, and trauma to my body that was pretty extensive. So both my arms were broken in multiple places, my hip, my pelvis, my right foot was crushed in the accident. And fortunately, I, I didn't have a concussion or I didn't have any brain injury. Um, so I was still there in entirety as far as my brain goes, but my body was pretty broken. And they put me back together like Humpty Dumpty and titanium and my all over my body. I mean, it, I don't want to get too close to electromagnets or it's, uh, it could be a problem. But I will tell you, uh, I was just lucky to be alive. And that's kind of the way I thought about things is I was just very lucky to be alive. But I didn't think I would ever be able to do the kinds of things I've done on the physical plane that I've done. And really, that's come from haymakers and and being involved in haymakers when i first signed up to fight after i committed to george and if you guys know george when you commit to him he doesn't let you off the hook and so i was not getting off the hook and i was like what did i just do i don't think i could train for a boxing match i can barely walk much less run i don't know i was very much out of shape i hadn't really trained for anything since the time of my accident and again, I was just happy to be walking and living life because I almost did it. It was a rough time. You know, it was 2002 when the car accident happened. I had moved to Vegas in 1998. My dad passed away from cancer in 1998 at the age of 58. Just a little while before that, we had 9-11. There was just, you're talking about trauma, right? Yeah, and yeah, yeah. So we had, and my, you know, I had connections to New York and so 9-11 happened. My dad passed away. And less than a month after my dad passed away, I picked up everything. I was living in Dallas at the time and moved to Las Vegas to run a magazine. And then less than three years later or four years later, I was in a you know head-on collision and almost died. So there was a lot. There was just never a, a period of time where I wasn't coming overcoming adversity at the time. Yeah. It was like a, a big stretch of that time. And then leaving... Las Vegas after the accident in 2004 and then ending up here in Boston working, there was just a lot of, you know, they usually say that the most traumatic things are all these changes in life, like divorce, illness, change of job, change of venue or change of place where you're going to live. And a lot of those things, except for divorce, thank goodness. Chris, were you married at this time of the accident? Yeah, I give a lot of credit to my wife, Cody. I mean, we've been married now 31 years. We met you know, when I was five, no, I'm kidding. Uh, <laughs> no, but um, I give her a lot of credit because she's been with me the whole way. You know, she's been my rock. And so I was very lucky. You know, my kids were very little. I had little kids too oh, when wow. I was in my car accident and they couldn't understand at the time how I went from being this outgoing go-getter type person running a media company in Las Vegas to being bedridden and hooked up to tubes and wires and all those right. things. And they didn't. Right. They didn't understand it. So I had to overcome that. But yeah, I mean, she was with me the whole way, but it did take, it did take a long time. I mean, it took almost six months for me just to be able to get out and get going again. And when I did start to get out and get going, I was in a wheelchair. Mm. So I was in a wheelchair for a while, not really knowing what was coming after that. 
And Wait, I'm sorry. What do you mean by that? You're not really sure what's coming afterward. What do you mean? Well, the doctors were optimistic, but I mean, I had a shattered pelvis and hip and ankle, and I knew I would most likely walk again, but I didn't know to what extent was I going to be able to do it. Would you have a limp? Would you have like be able to... You didn't know that at some point you'd be boxing in front of almost 2,000 people? No. Okay. But, but, I, but I will tell you the craziest story, thinking back on it, is when I went from the hospital to rehab, and they put me in rehab, I had this uh, therapist, right, who was supposed to help me get learn to walk again and get back on my feet, basically. And the first day I was in rehab, he came in, I was in my hospital bed, and he goes, here's how it's going to go. Every morning you get up, you're going to wake up at 6, lights are going to come on, breakfast is served. By 7, I want you in your chair, and I want you to wheel yourself down to the training room which is down the hall and we're going to start therapy. And I'm thinking I can barely do anything at the time. And sure enough, the next morning I woke up and literally just breakfast was sitting on my chest. It was the first time I had to do something for myself since the accident that I didn't have somebody help me do it. And to get into that chair was one of the hardest things I had ever done since up to that point. And now I look back and he was basically being much like George was, it's like, you're going to train and you're going to do this and you can do this and you're going to get better and you're going to be good. And, you know, you're going to be successful when you're going to get it done. And that's what this guy did for me. And looking back on it, that was just my first challenge on the road back to being who I am now. And Haymakers was just one of the biggest challenges I had. Not Every Fight Ends at the Bell is presented by Haymakers for Hope. To donate, sponsor, attend an event, or better yet, to sign up to be one of our ass-kicking do-gooders, visit haymakersforhope.org. Round two. You've mentioned change before, mm-hmm. and typically with change comes challenges, but oftentimes through change and challenge is where there is growth. And you have mentioned George Foreman and obviously the son of complete boxing royalty. Right. We actually had reached out to George and we have a message that I would like to share with you. Oh, man. Chris Rowland was one of the most tenacious fighters I've ever trained. And I believe at the time, this should have been 2014-ish, Haymakers was, was still somewhat new. Not everybody knew all, all, all what it was. But he knew that it was a, a real fight, that he was going to get in there and have to deal with somebody in a real way that he, he can get seriously hurt. But what impressed me is that he still decided to try. And I say that because... He had every reason not to participate, every legitimate excuse. I believe he had like some plates, maybe some injuries that he had sustained in the past, but a number of legitimate reasons why maybe he shouldn't do this. Had a little weight to lose. I think we had to give up beer, maybe. And, uh, and also, he was up in age. He was one of the older people um, entering into the competition. And so for him to even try to do this, I think that that was a, an outstanding show of guts. And then he had the discipline to show up and the determination to show up and train. And that's where most fighters, some of the greatest athletes and best talents, the reason they don't make it, because they just don't want to show up and train every day. And he did that because it's fun and cool to talk about at first. But six weeks into training camp, it gets real. And you want to go back to your old life and you want to hang out you know, with your partner and you want to drink and party and do all the things your friends are doing. But now you got to live a lonely life. And he lived that lonely life, which I was impressed with. Always showed up, ready to work. And then strategically, he had a tough assignment because we knew he was fighting somebody taller than him. And so we came up with a rugby term, I think it was. I believe he played rugby. 
called scrum. I believe that was the term. And we would yell that. He'd rush in, close the distance, wail, throw his punches as hard and as fast as he could, and then jump out. And that's one of the most exhausting things you can do in a boxing match in general, especially your first one where you're full with adrenaline. But he trained to do that. And then the guy showed up, fight night, could have pulled out, didn't, and got the job done, got in there and worked, 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 and fought his heart out, did everything he needed to do to to prepare, and went in there and gave it his all. And and for me, that's all you need to do to win. And showed so much heart in there and executed. Um, When we said scrum, he ran in there and did it. And I can go on and on, but you just don't see that in athletes in general. Someone who has an excuse and says, I'm going to try, dedicates himself, and then last but not least, shows up on fight night for his first time in front of 3,000 people at the House of Blues. So I think when we're rating fighters, we have to, you know, you can call them boxers. You can call them uh, defensive boxers or offensive boxers. You can call use the word fighter. And then I think sometimes we use the word warrior. And I think in the category of rating some of the warriors we've seen, he'd definitely be in the top five. Wow. Wow. <laughs> so with all those wow. reasons... That George mentioned all those reasons why not or why you shouldn't. What is your why for doing it? What was your motivation that led you to Haymakers to really see it through? Number one, I, I always was looking for ways to honor my father who died, you know, again from cancer when he was 58. And I'm 58 now, so it's kind of surreal for me to think that that was it for him. You know, 58, I still got a lot to do. Who knows what next I'll do? <laughs> it's crazy. But I think it was a calling. I mean, it's the only way. People ask me all the time, why would you do that? Why would you do it? And I think there's something inside you that just says to you, this is something you should do. And again, I think the way that I was introduced to Haymakers, the way that I kept coming into my life, and then eventually it was like poking me that I needed to act on it. And I think what George says is true. So many people don't take the opportunity that is in front of them because they're afraid or they can make excuses. And I wasn't going to allow that to happen to me. He has a very good memory. And it's funny, the stuff that he brings up because like he was, I didn't take it as seriously at the beginning because I didn't believe in myself. I mean, I was, I didn't think I could really do it at the beginning, but he believed in me. And then inevitably I started to believe in me. And that's when I became the warrior that he's talking about. And it was just a challenge for me, but it also gave me an amazing opportunity to honor my father and anyone else in my life that had been affected by cancer. I mean, everybody who's listening to this, including both of you guys, have been affected by cancer. And I'm not unique in that way, but I know that I'm sick of it, you know, doing what it's doing to the people out there that I love and the people that I care about. So, the worst thing you can do is do nothing. And I think that ultimately it was an opportunity for me to do something for the fight against cancer, but also something for myself to prove to myself that I am better than what I thought I was. And by the time I came out of that ring and I know that I'd left it all in there and that's all I could have done. And, you know, that's really the reason I did it. And I was very proud of that situation. So let's talk a little bit about your fight about fight night. Actually, I want to go back a little bit to media day. Your opponent was Rod Walkley. Yep. He is, I think the correct term is a giant. The, like, yeah. Had to be about seven feet tall. He's a tall guy. Rod's a big he, boy. He is a big boy. So you meet him on media day. Did you know he was a giant before media day or was it you're in the ring and then you look up and then you see Rob. 
Well, actually, before media day, there was the meet and greet. Yeah, no, thank you. Like I said, I did the best I could, but it is funny because, you know, George talks about yelling out scrum. But once you get in there and you start getting to that zone, it's really hard to even hear your trainers because you're not really listening. You're so focused, your opponent, and moving and trying to remember what you're supposed to be doing in there. And he's yelling scrum, and and then Rod landed his first big shot on my head. And this has probably come up like a million times, but it's, again, Mike Tyson. Uh, you know, everybody's got a plan until they get punched in the face. And at that point, I'm like, I've got to wake up and get busy here because he's just going to come and pound me if I don't. But I did. I just kept coming for me. And then I kept coming back after him. And I think I remember Rod saying to me, man, good thing we didn't have another couple rounds because I was getting gassed and you just kept coming. And, you know, who knows what would have happened in that fight. So if this were to go past three, I think things would have been different. So afterward, fight's over. How do you feel after the fight? Man, as someone who, you know, again, played rugby and has been athletic most of his life, I've had times where after the game or after a match or something, you were tired but and spent. But all I remember is going back to the green room or going back behind stage and, you know, the sweat and the blood on you and your hands are still taped and you're just, you know, spent. And I sat down in the corner and started untaping myself and just kind of, and I'll admit it, I just kind of cried because... You just left everything in that ring, and it was uh, it was amazing. It was an amazing feeling. It was just I wasn't hurt. I was energized. I mean, it, just the fact that I had done it, I'd gotten through all those months of training and adversity, and getting up in the morning to spar every Saturday morning, and having to drive to Boston for that, and all the things that we did to put it together, and just knowing that you had accomplished that it was an amazing feeling. So something that I had never experienced in my life until that point. Chris, right now, someone's listening right now and they're hearing this and your story is really exciting. You know, I want to get back to training. I want to train my fighters right now. (laughs) If you could tell someone who's listening or someone they're about to embark on this four-month boxing journey, so they've signed up, they've accepted, they're ready to go. What's one thing that you would tell them? Listen to your trainer and don't go against what he or she tells you to do. Go all in and a lot of these people, including myself, we're you know professionals. We're successful in our careers, or successful in life. But when you get a good trainer who really wants to see your success happen and can see what the end of the result could be like, and maybe you don't see it yet, don't buck your trainer, don't disregard your trainer. Like go all in and become the student, hundred percent. Be the student, and don't try to be yourself. Become that boxer who or that fighter who's not only coachable, but will do anything basically your trainer asks you to do because there's a, there's a purpose to it. And when I finally figured that out after about a few weeks after I started training with George, things started to rapidly improve and become amazing. And our relationship grew. And it's not just George. I mean, that entire gym, I mean, there were Marty Farrell, who was one of my ring guys, is an amazing coach as well. The people I sparred with that, that weren't even in Haymakers, amazing. I'm you know, I can name tons of people that I trained with, both in non-boxing training, just conditioning and things like that, and also get in the ring. And there was never, there was always somebody who wanted to get in the ring with me and help me at that gym. And I really appreciated that. The other unique thing about me, it was the first year of, of Everybody Fights. And at the time, you know, we were just getting going. So there were only three 
gentlemen fighting from Everybody Fights that year. It was me, Mark Avery, and another guy, Bill. And ultimately, as you guys know, Mark Avery now works for Mark Avery. Sounds familiar. That name sounds familiar. Avery's one of my best friends. He's one of my closest friends. And it all started with Haymakers, you know. It was another blessing for me, the relationships I've made through Haymakers beyond this, the boxing. So I'm very blessed to be part of it. Not Every Fight Ends at the Bell is presented by Haymakers for Hope. Did you know there's more to Haymakers than just boxing? We also have opportunities for you to lace up your sneakers and run a marathon with Team Haymakers. Or grab your clubs and play in one of our golf tournaments. Visit haymakersforhope.org for more. Round three. Let's quickly talk about life after the bell. So how has the Haymakers experience affected your life? Wow. So Haymakers was such an amazing experience. And I tell people all the time, if you even thinking about checking it out or getting involved as a boxer, you should look into it. But once you look into it, you should just commit and do it. After the fight, I will say, it took a little while for me to get used to having so much time on my hands. You know, it is a big time commitment and you have to be sure that your loved ones, your significant others and your friends understand that it's serious. And it's no joke. You're really training. You're really working hard and you're, you're going to be unavailable in a lot of ways for a while. And when the fight was over, I became a lot more available and it was hard to get used to that. So I continued training, going to the gym and training. I decided that at especially at that my age and what have you, I wasn't going to continue boxing. So that was my debut and my final fight as well. But I loved the training and I kept doing it. And to this day, I still love to hit bags and do round-oriented workouts. But at the end of the day, I really love to stay involved with the organization. My, I've kept up the relationships that I've made both in my gym and through the Haymakers organization. When the decision was made to create a golf tournament i was ecstatic because even though i'm a probably better fighter than golfer i was excited that's something i could still do and still be involved in the organization so you know we put a team together and it's fun the, the team that we put together all uh the, my team are all ex or alumni of uh haymakers for hope and then we're all not from the same gym and it's it's really cool that we can do that and i love to participate that way i love to still come to the fights and support the organization financially and emotionally and what any way I can, uh, because it's a huge, it's a huge part of my life now. And it's a lot like a, like a club or a fraternity or something that you, that you join and you build emotional bonds to. And I feel like there's an emotional bond for me to Haymakers for Hope. So why should someone sign up to participate? I think it's really a personal decision. It's really hard for me to tell someone why. But I will say, if you're looking for something for yourself, a challenge that you think you need, or you're just you're missing something, and you've, you're looking for something to fill that that void, haymakers could be something amazing for you. But don't be afraid to commit. And if you do commit, stay committed. Commit to the training. Commit to your trainer. Commit to the time. You're going to get an amazing physical condition. I mean, it was the best condition I've ever been in my life, and both physically and emotionally, I think. And I think you just have to make that decision. But it's a very personal decision. For me, it was, again, my father, my relatives that have fought cancer and to see the pain and the suffering that people go through with that this terrible disease was just something that 
I've wanted to fight my whole life. And this was a way for me to do it and raise money for Dana Farber. And, you know, without the funds and the money, we'll never find a cure. And I think Hamer's has done an unbelievable job raising money for cancer research. So I think you just have to look inside your soul and decide, is this for me? And even though your mind and your soul may be telling you don't do it, if you're feeling like you should do it, just go do it. You really just got to go and do it. And it's going to be hard. You're going to hurt a little bit, but it's going to be worth it. Before we sort of wrap up, you touched on this earlier about your dad, that you're approaching the same age that your dad was when he passed. And you had mentioned that that's kind of surreal for you. And I'm just curious, how does that feel? Especially with you have kids. Yeah, I mean, I have adult kids now and they're living their lives. They're making their way. And I don't know, I feel like there's just so much more life out there for me. And this is nothing against my father. It's just that it was unfortunate for him to have his life shortened so much by this terrible disease. And I always think about the what if, what could have been kind of thing. So when you hit that age, and especially, you know, time flies by in a lot of ways. And so you just got to realize that life is important and it's short. And I actually have a tattoo now that says Memento Mori on it. And Memento Mori is remember death. And it's not a negative thing. It's a positive thing. It's remember that you will die. So live like you will die, you know, live like you were dying. And that's the best way I can think about living, you know, do everything, try everything. Don't say no, if you don't have to, you know, and I think it's important to live life like that. And so the Haymakers experience taught me a lot about that is just commit and do the work and get the results that you want and the return you want from that experience. So burn your boats, burn your boats for sure. Chris, thank you so much for coming and sharing your story. You continue to be an inspiration to me and just to the organization. And I cannot thank you just for your continued support and really just sharing with us the bald bull, everybody. Bald bull. Chris, it was fantastic meeting you. Thank you. Hey, it's my pleasure. I really appreciate you having me and thanks so much. Thank you for taking the time to listen. We're grateful for your support. If you enjoyed this episode, please follow the podcast and tell a friend. To donate, sponsor, attend an event, or better yet, sign up to fight to KO cancer, visit haymakersforhope.org. Not Every Fight Ends at the Bell is presented and produced by Haymakers for Hope in partnership with Studio Pod Media. Our producers are former fighters Jordan McMillan and Julian Lewis. I'm Julie Kelly. And I'm Todd Buster Paris. You've been listening to Not Every Fight Ends at the Bell. 